I view life as one big adventure. I'm always learning and finding new things to try and challenges to overcome. Whether you're running a company or simply living your life, hopefully you can learn from my mistakes and put a smile on your face along the way. A reviewer described Losing My Virginity as the first autobiography in which the author had written an expose on himself. I hope finding my virginity will be similar. If your life is one long success story, it won't make for a good read. What's more, you're most likely a liar. We all have ups and downs, trials and tribulations, failures and triumphs. We just hope to come out stronger on the other side. The late Steve Jobs, the entrepreneur I most admire, said, My favorite things in life don't cost any money. It's really clear that the most precious resource we all have is time. That thought has been on my mind as I write this book, thinking back to all the good times and tough times behind me, and looking forward with wonder at what lies ahead. I've always lived every day as if it's my last, fiercely loving my family and friends and trying to make a positive difference. We only get one life, and this is mine. So that is from the prologue of the book that I want to talk to you about today, which is Finding My Virginity, the new autobiography by Richard Branson. So this is going to be a the second of a three-part series on Richard Branson. Last week, we covered the book that he just mentioned, uh, which was Losing My Virginity, How I Survived, Had Fun, Made a Fortune, and Made a Fortune Doing Business My Way. So the Finding My Virginity is written about 20 years after he wrote Losing My Virginity. So at the end of the first book, he has about a billion dollars in the bank. And for the first time in his life, he's achieved financial freedom after a career. Because most of Losing My Virginity is all about the struggle from starting his first company at 15 years old all the way up until selling Virgin Records, which is the first time in his life that he ever had room to breathe and he didn't have to go to banks and and beg them to like extend loans and raise more credit so although there is going to be a ton of business stories in the book after i finished it uh, after i finished reading the book i came to the conclusion it's more about a book on life and he's almost 70 years old when he's writing it and he's looking back and he's kind of giving us explicit lessons on, like he said from the prologue, I'm hoping you can learn from my mistakes. And so that's the uh, frame from which I want you to look uh, at the stories that we're going to talk about today as, as uh, quite contrasted from the stories we talked about last week. And then next week will be part three. Uh, he's written many books, but I just chose three to cover. Um, and if you want to see which book we're going to cover next week, go to founderspodcast.com forward slash books. And you could see not only um, next week's books, but you could see the 40 plus books that have been covered on the podcast so far. So before I get into the rest of the book and we start talking about the start of what he calls his third career, just a reminder that once we get going here, um, this podcast is a little different from maybe the other podcasts that you're used to listening to. Uh, I'm not going to interrupt our time with ads. Uh, this podcast is supported solely by people that get value from it. If you like the podcast and you want to support it, um, the best way to do that is by becoming a member. Just go to founderspodcast forward slash support, or you can just uh, click the link that's in your show notes on your podcast player. And for a very small monthly fee, you can unlock members only podcasts. So these are podcasts that are not released anywhere else. Um, it's only for people that are actively supporting the podcast. And I think if you sign up today, there's like 11 
un- you'd unlock, maybe 12. And I add, uh, I do an extra podcast every week just for members. Okay, so I'll talk more about, about that at the end. Let me go ahead and jump into the book. And we're just going to, we're going to pick it up right in the year 1999. And this is what he's calling the start of his third career. Necker Island, New Year's Eve, 1998. I was in my bedroom trying to make an urgent to-do list. With the end of the year approaching and the end of the millennium looming, I, find my, I found myself both reflecting back and looking forward. As so often during my life as an entrepreneur, I really had no idea what was coming next. I had created and sold the biggest independent record label on the planet and fought doggedly to build Virgin Atlantic into the best airline in the world. The Virgin Group had grown from a couple of companies to more than a hundred, and I had gone from a struggling hippie to a proud father and businessman. My mind was starting to wander to other projects, fresh ambitions, and bigger dreams. It was time for a new start and to look to the stars. Many experts will tell you it tends to take a year to get a business off the ground, from the initial idea through planning, market research, development, and launch. Personally, I've always disregarded this rule. When I was a wide-eyed teenager, our mail-order record company was set up in a couple of days, and even more complex businesses like Virgin Atlantic went from idea to liftoff in a matter of weeks. Generally, we like to work fast, try ideas, see if they stick, and if they don't, quickly move on to the next one. I work best when my mind is able to jump from one topic to the next in quick succession. It keeps things lively, and it's amazing how often good ideas from one company come out of another company's unrelated businesses. We talked a little bit about this last week with Second Order Effects. The, there, there's many examples, in not only in this book, but in, uh, in last week's book, where he wouldn't have been able to seize the opportunity if he hadn't already done something uh, previously, like... Uh, in, in the case that he's referencing here specifically, can't start a mail order com- record company if you haven't started a magazine first. So this whole idea when he goes back a couple uh, paragraphs where he's like, you know, like most entrepreneurs, I really had no idea what was coming next. Um, so how do you combat, in Richard's opinion, how do you combat the fact that you can't predict the future? Well, he just described it. He's like, I like to iterate. I like to try a lot of different ideas, see if they work. And if not, let's just move on to the next one. One of my favorite quotes of his, I think I mentioned this last week, is... Uh, uh, businesses are like buses. There's always another one coming. And sometimes I feel as like founders, uh, we can fall in love with our idea and, and like kind of like stick to it as if it's the only one out there. And it's just a good reminder that's not. Okay. Uh, so it says, you know, sometimes one company came out of a completely unrelated business. He's just describing that with Student Magazine into the mail order record company, which then turns into record shops, which then turns into a recording studio, which then turns into a record label that he sells for a billion dollars 20 years in the future. So he says, the turn of the century was to, pr- was to prove unpresent- unprecedentedly productive, even by our standards, meaning of the Virgin Group. After my first wave as a records imp- impersonario, I think that's that word, and second as an airline founder, The third wave of my career as a global entrepreneur was about to begin in earnest. So um, I just want to set up the rest of the book because it expounds on this idea. I think I talked about it on last week's members episode. So if you're not already a member, you missed out on that. But the quick summary is that he has this idea of um, 
this new wave he's talking about as a global entrepreneur uh, and expanding out into other areas with the the Virgin Group. Um, he has this term he uses. It's called branded venture capital. Um, so I, I think I said last week, I'm obviously familiar with what venture capital is. I've never heard of the idea of branded venture capital. And so his idea is, hey, we have all this money. We have a great brand. Um, let's do a bunch of 50-50 partnerships. And I'm saying 50-50. Most of them are 50-50. Some of them, there's obviously different um, different breakdowns. But his preference is 50-50 partnerships. So people are, are bought in. Sometimes it's 51 49 and we're going to find people that are either from within the organization or outside. We'll partner with them uh, and we'll run a bunch. Instead of thinking about the Virgin Group as one company, it's you know a small collection of loosely affiliated uh, three. Uh, last time I checked, it was like 400 companies. I don't know what it is uh, today. And in this book, he, he gives a couple different numbers. Sometimes it's uh, 100, 200, 300 and, and so on. So I'm not exactly sure the exact amount, but you get the, the basic idea. And then what happens is these tiny companies, as they grow, they're, they're broken up into even smaller companies. And what this does is it caps his downside. It almost looks like, to me, it looks like a, an out-of-the-money option. So his downside's capped. His upside's potentially unlimited. And I don't know if I'll cover it in here, but it talks about like one airline he started. I think they started with like either 3 or $10 million. They get a buyout offer a few months or a few years later for $250 million. He turns that down, and it winds up going public for like $1.5 billion. So that's an example. There's a bunch of examples where he takes these tiny little companies that he starts after several years, and they'll, they'll IPO You know, uh, for smaller numbers, and I think we're used to in America at least, where maybe we're uh, the outliers, at least the, the, the media that I'm exposed to. But there's several of these companies where he'll take public for you know $1 to $2 billion. So that's his basic business idea, and I really like that idea. Um, but the reason I'm telling you all this is uh, not only so you understand, you know, his modus operandi and how he wants to organize businesses, um, and f- you know, my own personal, f- uh, like it speaks to my own personal like philosophical leanings. But there's going to be issues with these because think about what he was just uh, at the very beginning of the book. He was comparing, uh, you know, who did he name as the entrepreneur he most admired. Steve Jobs. This is the exact opposite approach that Steve, that Steve took. And so Steve was all about control. Um, and Richard is more about people and opportunities. And he uh, self-diagnosed uh, attention deficit disorder. So he wants to constantly, you know, his business wants, he wants his business to be a constant like reflection of his personality. But the only problem with that is sometimes when you have, you're not controlling it, completely you're you're partnering you can't really control what other human beings are going to do especially the ones outside of your organization so that was a very long wind up to tell you about a little story that's in the book that i want to share with you that has to do with going to court against a partner and um we're going to jump right into it i dislike going to court almost as as much as i dislike wearing suits back when i was starting out i'd scribbled out the words we don't need lawyers in my notebook and underline them for good measure Court cases can keep me up at night with worry, and there have been numerous occasions over the years where we've had to go and defend ourselves. My first, and now we're going to do some flashback before we get to this fight with T-Mobile. My first experience was back in 1970 when I was arrested under the 1899 Indecent Advertisement Act for using the words venereal disease. This is so ridiculous, but it's actually true. Uh, for using the word venereal disease in our student advisory center leaflets to encourage young people to get sexual health checkups. Um, what he's talking about is uh, one of the, the uh, 
it's not a charitable project, but one of the uh, projects that came out of Student Magazine, so Student Magazine was a for-profit endeavor that they funded by selling advertising. But uh, they would do things that, you know, they were young and idealistic. So they started up basically a call center where you could call in and it's for students that had problems. You know, uh, they wanted to commit suicide. They had sexually transmitted diseases. They had all these problems that some young people have that are uncomfortable telling, like, maybe their family about. So that's what he's talking about. Well, that's what the student advisory center was. So he's saying, hey, um, we had these ads saying you, you need to get checked to make sure you're not spreading venereal diseases. Um, after a day in the dock, meaning jail, we were given a nominal fine of seven pounds. But as a result, the outmoded law was eventually changed. Next, the infamous Sex Pistols case in 1977, when we were taken to court for displaying the band's album title, Never Mind the Bollocks, in our record store window. So that's a, the second time he's prosecuted under the 1899 Indecent Advertisements Act. Um, and this is actually, I don't know if I covered this last week, but it's actually pretty funny how he gets out, out of this. Um, we won the case when a professor of linguistics testified to uh, for us that bollocks was a nickname for priests. So they actually, the what is it called? The etymology? Ep- I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but basically tracing where the, ori- the, the term, how the term uh, originally started and the changing of the actual definition into like the, the slang. So they were using bollocks, like, you know, like BS. But the actual definition was uh, derivative of uh, clergy, like priests. So it says, before revealing that he was a priest himself. And so once the, he had this linguistics uh, expert testify, the judge uh, realized he's a priest and the, the charges were dropped. So it says, I was in no mood for another day in court and not because I hate wearing a tie, but the situation with T-Mobile was so serious, there was no other option. So um, this is an example of what, what he means by branded venture capital. And so we're going to figure out what is, what is Virgin Mobile, like what are the components that make up Virgin Mobile? He says the shame was that Virgin Mobile was actually doing really well. By 2003, Virgin Mobile UK was turning over more than a million dollars, excuse me, a million pounds a day. Uh, again, I'm so used to talking about dollars that sometimes I'm, I'm going to be saying dollars accidentally. It's every <laughs> number that is in this book is in pounds. As such, we were already looking into floating the business on the stock exchange. Our partners, T-Mobile, was very happy with the way things were going, or so I thought. It all changed with the arrival of the, of the new T-Mobile UK managing director, Harris Jones, from America. Mr. Jones took a very different view of the situation. He saw our relative inexperience in mobile markets as an opportunity and decided to try to snatch our 50% share in, the, in a company now worth more than $1 billion. He claimed he was upset that T-Mobile had to pay us a marketing fee uh, of around £4.56 pound, £4. a month for every Virgin Mobile customer. The deal was written plain as day in our contract. But this didn't stop T-Mobile calling in their high-powered lawyers and threatening us with court if we didn't change the agreement. I thought it was disgraceful, and we immediately took legal advice. However, we were in an acutely difficult position because as we didn't own our own infrastructure, our masts, we relied on T-Mobile to provide service for our 2.4 million customers. See what he's doing there? So he's basically just rebranded, and this is common. You see this in the United States, like Metro PCS and all these other cricket, stuff like that. We have an, uh, a third party say, hey, um, we're going to do a new service. We're going to, uh, the branding on top of it's going to be different. The price structure might be different, but we need you to provide, uh, to become our partner and provide the actual 
uh, service, which is what T-Mobile is doing. So think about Virgin UK as just being a, a different uh, operating under like a private label, in this case, Virgin uh, Mobile UK in the, in the United Kingdom. He does this in a couple different other countries, too. So it says, um, as was typical at the time, Virgin Group's cash flow was running low, with money disappearing fast in the Virgin Atlantic, among others. We could ill afford an expensive legal battle. T-Mobile asked us outright to cut the marketing fee payments. We, debate, we debated whether it was worth conceding substantial amounts of money for the sake of saving the relationship. In the end, we decided on principle to stand firm. We're in the right here. I'm not being bullied by them, I told the team. Once we gave, our, gave them a response, T-Mobile attempted to break our partnership by activating a so-called no-fault termination clause. If successful, it would, give, it would have given them all, this, all of our shares worth over half a billion pounds for just one pound. A date in court became inevitable. See, I don't know when this is taking place because, well, he says by 2003. Okay, so that's about... 10 years after he sold the record company? Because he's saying they're running out of cash, but he just had 500 pounds. So maybe meaning like actual cash flow and he was reinvested into companies. Okay. Well, I guess it's not. That's just my own curiosity. It doesn't, it's not too important to the story. The judge not only saw our side of the story, he, actually, he was actually appalled by T-Mobile's behavior. In my judgment, this is the judge talking, their behavior was not acceptable commercial conduct. T-Mobile took the view that, this is, that its commercial interests took precedence over the rights and wrongs of the situation. That, in my judgment, is a course of conduct which is deserving of moral condemnation. Instead of T-Mobile being given our shares for one pound, as they demanded, the judge ordered them to give, to give us all of their shares worth 500 million pounds for one pound. What's more, they were made to pay the cost of both sides as well as the damages. A bad day for T-Mobile just got worse. By taking us to court, they had ended up losing well over half a billion pounds. The following day, I had a telephone call from the head of T-Mobile, or from the head of T-Mobile's owners. This is this, com com this company called Dutch Dutch Telecom. So he says, uh, he was really charming, genuinely mortified by what had happened, and invited me over to their headquarters so he could apologize in person. He told me he was going to fire Harris Jones, that's the guy that came from America that took over Virgin Mobile UK, and the, or excuse me, T-Mobile UK, and got uh, them into this whole mess in the first place, and that he accepted the court's judgment. I hope, and this is the surprising part, I hope we can enter into another commercial deal going forward, he said. I was impressed and admired his pragmatism, and this is the lesson, even though he had lost half a billion, he wanted to at least rescue something from it. Okay, so this is how he identifies the opportunity for Virgin America. And his, his conclusion is something that, um, that I love to hear. And it's something that I think is observable if, when you take the time to think about it. And so that size, meaning size of a company, rarely equates to the quality of the company. So he says, whenever I flew in America, I encountered the same problems I used to find with international travel. The service was poor. Prices were high. The entertainment was almost non-existent. The food was barely edible and the customers were missing out. It felt like an accepted truth that cross-country American flights were something to be endured rather than enjoy. 
We saw it as a real chance to disrupt a sector where we had already had expertise in a key market where the Virgin brand was loved but had room to expand. Why not make flying good again instead of treating customers like cattle? So a few pages later, he identifies why is that even the case? And he says, in their wisdom, the U.S. Competition Authority somehow let the six largest airlines in the U.S. become three giant airlines. Through sheer size, they dominate the market and control key slot. Excuse me, control slots in key airports, stifling competition and innovation. The industry response bore this theory out. In nearly every major survey of the U.S. airlines, United came out last, while Virgin America was top of the pile. Size rarely equates to quality. So most of the part I'm going to skip over is uh, there's this huge war with the consolidation of uh, the airlines. They're continuing to consolidate uh, internationally as well. Um, so Virgin America creates a profitable airline. They're doing rather well. They take it public, and then they get bought out by Alaska Airlines, which just happened recently in the last maybe two years, I think. And later on in the book, he talks about how being furious because – you have this lo beloved brand, right? And Alaska buys them, I don't know, for maybe like $2 billion, something like that. And they shut everything down and fire all the employees. So uh, from a consumer's standpoint, like why do you do that? And you do that because you're trying to eliminate competition. But that's not good for your customers. So it's just something I, I hate seeing. Um, even though I'm very much capitalist, I don't like concentration uh, what I find, like my personal opinion, like this is really crony capitalism when you have, uh, you know, usually these massive companies that have paid off politicians and now are getting to like the politicians should be working for the consumer. And what is best for the consumer is like a diversified market, lots of little players trying to innovate and constantly like improve not only the product they're making, but the prices that consumers are paying and letting, you know, six airlines consolidate under three like that's that's just not it's never good at least it's not good for us might be good for the shareholders and the people of the company but you gotta i think think broader um okay so i want to he has this so a lot of uh a lot of what is written about in these books is like his adventure venture um side he he has like six guinness guinness book of world records from anything from like the fastest Crossing the Atlantic Ocean the fastest in a balloon to crossing the fastest in like a boat. All kinds of, you know, kind of dangerous, crazy, uh, life-threatening adventures he's been on. But the reason I, I, I left a lot of that out is because I want to focus, obviously, like the lessons that we could take for a business. But I think he has this anecdote here that's helpful for us. And it, it it's the, um, well, how would I put this? Like the core, the the correlation between risk and focus. And this is especially present in my mind because I just saw this fantastic documentary in the movie theater with, um, I think it's by National Geographic. It's called Free Solo. And it's about this free soloing is mountain climbing with no, with only your hands, feet, and chalk. And it's about what they call one of the greatest uh, athletic feats in human history. And this guy named Alex Honnold walks up to uh, this 3,000 foot tall 
piece of granite in Yosemite National Park called El Capitan, and he climbs it in four hours just on his own will. So once I finish reading this part, I'll explain to you why I feel like they're connected. So it says, pushing the limits of flying and stretching the technology to take us into space offers those who take part uh, in in it remarkable, never-to-be-forgotten experiences. But those rewards don't come without a risk attached. And in the mid-90s, I was devastated to lose several heroic men in two separate accidents. So I don't know if that's a typo because he says in the mid-90s, but now we're in February 2005 when this happens. So... He actually, this the guy we're going to talk about that dies, dies in 2007. So I, I'm a little confused by that. In February 2005, I had turned my attention away from Virgin Galactic and back to the project that had led us to working with Burt Rattan in the first place, which is the Virgin Atlantic Global Flyer. So Virgin Galactic, you know, this is, you, you probably know, this is his attempt to uh, take regular citizens into low Earth orbit, uh, into, you know, what what is defined as like the lowest part part of space now the virgin atlantic global flyer is this um i would say marketing stunt that he did uh, that might have been his primary motivation but it was like the largest the longest uh flight without stopping to refuel it's like this future if you want to google and you want to see what it looks like just google virgin atlantic global flyer it's a rather interesting um plane designed by this guy named Burt Rattan, who's also uh, heavy, heavily featured in that book, Space Barons, which I did a podcast a, a few months or a few weeks or months ago. But it was this like carbon fiber futuristic plane that that traveled. Or am I actually going to, am I telling you what's going to happen before it happens? Okay. Yeah, I am. I'm actually going to tell you, let me, let me just read this because the book's going to describe it better than I could summarize it. Uh, so he says, I traveled down to Salinas in Kansas and was met by a crowd of thousands on a freezing land trip, looking up at the majestic plane. As Steve Fawcett, so Steve's the guy that's going to die in a few years from now, and I stood on the runway, I took a moment to marvel at the sheer strangeness of what we had built. Okay, yeah, I was co- totally tripping over myself. He's going to describe what it looks like in here. The global flyer had a single jet engine above a short casing in the middle with a tiny cockpit in front of it. Steve would have a few feet of space to sit to sit in while he flew around the world without stopping. To either side, he could see twin tail booms mounted, making up a 35-meter wingspan with every part of the plane built with ultra-light material. If we could pull this off, it could revolutionize the way, the way planes were built and save massive, massively on CO2 emissions. As Steve got into the cockpit, I jumped into a chase plane to follow. Um, So he's in a plane. um, It says, Steve expertly guided the plane off the runway, and it flew magnificently from the get-go. It was exhilarating, flying behind, watching this unique machine zip through the air in front of us. I was already envisioning converting this technology to our commercial jets in the future. Um, It says, but then the global flyer began to lose lots of fuel very quickly. Next, the GPS system faltered. I was nervous, I have to confess, but had full confidence in Steve's ability at the controls. He was extraordinarily calm under pressure, as he had shown on countless other adventures, including becoming the first person to fly a helium balloon around the world solo. Even so, it was alarming that I could no longer follow Steve's progress in the chase plane. When it got to the morning of March 1st, I had to stop in Toronto to launch Virgin Mobile Canada and was dumped onto the tarmac at the airport as Steve flew off overhead. 
Um, so this is back in the Mojave Desert. Bert and his team were frantically calculating whether the Virgin Atlantic Global Flyer had enough fuel to, ch- to continue the challenge. The wind was playing in our favor. If the jet stream remained strong, Steve could still make it. Nearly three days after he left, with almost no sleep, no respite, and no landings, he glided back onto the tarmac in Salinas. He had set a world record for the longest nonstop flight in history. 26,389 miles in 67 hours. So this is the result of that, uh, of this stunt. Boeing and Airbus were quickly in touch and visited Scales Factory. This is Scaled Composites is the name of the company that built the plane for Virgin. And that guy, Bert Raton, who's legendary in his own right, uh, is the the founder of Scaled Composites. I got to see if there's a book about that guy because he's had a rather interesting um, life. And he'd he'd make a good... um, Episode of Founders. Um, So uh, talking about Boeing and Airbus, they were astounded that a plane built out of carbon composite material could fly around the world nonstop using less fuel per hour than a four-wheel truck. They set about developing their own versions, and now planes like the Airbus A350 and the Boeing 787 are largely made of carbon composite material. Years later, Virgin Atlantic ended up buying them from both companies. Steve went on to complete two more world record-breaking flights in in the Virgin Atlantic Global Flyer, which were among an amazing 116 records he set in five different sports. Okay. So, that is the lead-up to, remember, this whole section is about risk and focus. So, he's doing something insanely dangerous, and as such... Um, he has to be completely focused. And now here's the the sad part. He says, But Steve's record-breaking trials were soon followed by a tragedy. A year later, he disappeared while flying over the Great Basin Desert in Nevada. I was distraught and hoped against hope he was alive. Um, so it says, we, you know, they, they went to look for him. When the Civil Air Patrol called off the search on October 2nd, 2007, after a month with no breakthroughs, We continued the search using Google's Earth new satellite imagery technology. Sadly, there was to be no miracle. On September 29, 2008, a hiker found Steve's identification cards in the Sierra Nevada mountains in California and remains matching Steve's DNA were later recovered. This is um, Richard's takeaway from this. It's strange how adventurers often die doing something relatively mundane. Steve died flying a normal plane, not while chasing the land speed record. When you and this is the the, the last two sentences that we really want you to focus on, and I'll explain how it r- relates to free solo. When you know the dangers, are trained for them, and are fully focused, you are usually ready to deal with them. Mistakes can often happen in less dangerous situations. So to me, that's, that, that is a story that can be applied to the risk that you take when you're building companies. But the reason I would say that is because when you watch Free Solo, Alex had been mountain climbing and preparing for that one day for 22 years. Um, and the, the documentary shows over and over again, he, he would climb the same route he was going to climb with, no, with, no, with uh, just hands and feet. With you know the way normal mountain climbers do it, they usually do it with partners, or they have and they have ropes, and he would just train over and over again, and 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 practice and practice, and he did this hundreds of times before he attempted it, 
And what he liked about Free Solo is that the point he made in, in the documentary was he knows the risks. One mistake and he falls, you know, several hundreds of feet to, to several thousands of feet to his death. So he has to be completely in focused and almost in like a flow state where he's not thinking about anything else because he can't afford to. And that's the thrill that he gets off, off of it. And um, shortly after seeing the movie, I was so amazed. I went home and started doing research on watching other documentaries about mountain climbing and, and everything else. And I came across something interesting. The exact, exact route that Alex was able to free solo up um, El Capitan, a few months after that, there was two guys who were in their 40s. They had been mountain climbing for 20 plus years. They had climbed El Capitan over and over again, but with ropes. And they were doing, they were practicing, I guess it's called speed climbing. So you see how fast you and a partner can climb up whatever specific route that, that you're going on. And so as such, they had done it so many times and got so used to it, they were not, pro- they were not taking the proper safety precautions because they were, they were comfortable. So this is the, the you can kind of see where the story's going if you think about it in terms of risk and focus. Alex, uh, Steve, these guys are extremely focused because they're doing something dangerous and you know if they make a mistake, it's their life. But when you're doing something nonchalant, something you've done a million times, I'm just flying a normal plane. Like he said, there's a lot of examples of adventurers dying doing normal things, not the adventure. Well, they these guys were tied together. One of them didn't set um, set a safety hook in, and it was just doing it, you know, because he thought, oh, this part's easy, I can do it. He accidentally slipped. As he falls, he pulls his best friend off the mountain, and they fall 900 feet to their death. So, when you're building a company, it's not life or death. But I think the good lesson here is that. Mistakes can often happen in less dangerous situations. So when you know you're doing something that may be risky for your business or you, you, knew, you know you need, you need your full attention and focus, chances are you're getting the, your best work out of, that you're capable of out of. Like, uh, let me say that again. Chances are in those environments, you're getting the best performance that you're capable of doing. It's when you're... Doing something a million times that you don't think is... A, I guess what I'm saying here is that the the biggest risk is when you don't think there's a risk because that's when you get relaxed. That's when you think, oh, I've done this a million times. I can just do this with my eyes closed. And that's when you've realized that you know maybe the, the thing that you thought was easy is actually more complex and that complexity can be dangerous for you. Okay, so this is switching gears a little bit. Um, this is how Richard Branson feels about selling companies. At heart, I am an entrepreneur, which means I love building businesses and creating new things. In order to keep this going, however, it sometimes means selling stakes in companies or entire businesses. This is one part of my life I don't enjoy. I am not a person who harbors regrets, but selling companies has always left me with an empty feeling. I can still taste the tears streaming down my face after I sold Virgin Records in 1992 to keep Virgin Atlantic float. Selling 49% of Virgin Atlantic in 1999 was very tough too, but we needed the funds to kickstart the early stages of Virgin Active. Virgin Active is like a, their line of like gyms or health clubs. The expansion of Virgin Money and the creation of Virgin Mobile. I think all three of those businesses, Virgin Active, Mobile, and Money, I think all IPO'd. And I think they're all, I think they all IPO'd for over a billion dollars. I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure. I enjoy the intensity of the building process and the process and the heat of the negotiating table. 
But as I believe that a business is nothing more than a group of people trying to make a difference, selling always leaves me sad, feeling somehow I have traded people. So when I do have regrets, it is generally about upsetting people along the way or letting anyone down. Sometimes in business, people get hurt. But sometimes too, doing a deal is the right thing for all parties. Okay, so now you know how he feels about selling companies. Um, this is, I don't know why this has been on my mind so much about the, just like enjoying the time you have now because it's only coming once. And maybe it's because I have a young daughter and I know like there's a lot of stories that kind of make me, uh, it can't be, the, the word's not nostalgic because I haven't experienced it yet. But uh, in the book, Richard talks about like, you know, his daughter Holly's born uh, one day he's playing with her you know, dance, uh, playing, dancing with her at three years old. And the next he looks up and she's getting married. <laughs> and, um, I thought about that last night. I was out to dinner with my wife and I was just like, we're going to miss these times. Like, she's like, what do you mean? I was like, these times right now being in our early thirties, like having a young child like this, like 20 years from now, you're going to, you're just going to miss it. I want to make sure that I'm like relishing and enjoying life. And I think I told and she looked at me like I was a little crazy. I was like, listen, I really think it's because I'm reading all these autobiographies and these, you know, they're writing autobiographies towards the end of their life and they're talking about things they look back on and they miss and it's heavily influencing me. So I tell you that to tell you to say the next thing is that, you know, something I've talked about, I think it started in the Paul Allen book, might have started in before that, but just this idea that, you know, it's really hard for us as single people as individuals to make a change in the world. It's not impossible, but it's really hard. But the thing you can influence is like your immediate surrounding. And even more of an influence is by being a good parent, I think is the best thing that you can do to have a positive impact in the world. Because if everybody was a good parent, like think about all the, the ways kids can grow up in, in just really wretched, putrid environments. And those kids are influenced by that environment and they become the adults and they do the same thing. You got to break the cycle somewhere. And so this is just a quick little paragraph about that kind of stuck in my mind about him talking to, um, he's talking to his son. He's like, like many young people, Sam, this is his son, hadn't worked out what he wanted to do by the time he left school. I reassured him that that was absolutely fine and natural too. Just think about those two sentences. Like how many of us knew, I mean, I, I, you just, you're just so young. You don't know anything about the world yet. And so I do think there's a lot of pressure to like make a decision. Like think about what, how we it's set up in the United States. Like, I guess in most other countries, but I'm just talking about the culture that I grew up in. It, you're, it's, you're, we're asking 16 and 17 year olds to make like life changing decisions to sometimes take on hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and pick a career that they, that they're, they that they are going to need to enjoy for the next 40 years. Like that just seems really like, impossible. And so I felt these, these things too. Like, uh, I'm sure you probably did as well at this age. And so he goes, you're 19. I remember telling him in one conversation, and then this is the sentence that just hit me hard, and I was kind of talking about last night at dinner. That only happens once, so enjoy it. I was very keen not to put any pressure on him or his sister and let them stand on their own two feet. Like me, Sam wasn't particularly academic, and told me that school had always made him feel like his options were quite narrow. So he goes on and, and tells him, hey, take a gap year. Like, learn who you are first. And so I'm not going to continue reading the rest of that. But it's just a reminder. It's, you know, if you are 
whether you are a parent already or you're going to be, you, you know, most likely most of the people listening to this are either a parent already or will be one day. You just got to um, just just try to be a good parent. Just really think about it. It's probably the most important things that we're ever going to do in our lives. Although it, sometimes it feels like our businesses are, you know. All right. Um, okay, so let me skip ahead. Oh, this is interesting because I've told you one of my favorite authors um, is Michael Lewis. <laughs> he can make uh, almost any subject entertaining. And one of the books that I've read that made a fundamental difference on me, maybe because of the time I was younger when I read it or I don't know what it was, but it's a big short. So this is um, right around the time that Richard's be giving a, a business opportunity. And this is taking place in the early to mid two thousands. And this is his his the takeaway from the story is to trust your intuition. In the mid two thousands, lots of people were excited about a new commodity that Goldman Sachs wanted to invest in. I had never heard of it, found it quite confusing, and balked at the amount of money required. We decided to bide our time and get more details. As we investigated the deal further, I grew even more skeptical about the damage it could do to our brand, and we turned it down. I forgot all about the, those commodities until the real estate lending crash sent the financial world into disarray. So several years later, suddenly the commodities were all anybody was talking about subprime mortgages. Many experts placed a lots of the blame for the crash on subprimes and Goldman Sachs were fined 550 million by the U S securities and exchange commission, as well as forking out the second biggest penalty ever paid by a wall street company, Goldman Sachs also had to state that its subprimes marketing material, the same documents we had been looking at, had misled investors with incomplete information. So basically, they wanted a ton of money in an area that he had no idea. It didn't make sense. His gut told him not to do it. And it turns out they were um, they were lying. I almost said a different word there. Uh, they were. They, it's interesting to talk. Oh, it's incomplete information. No, it's they're they're scamming you. It was a timely reminder to always examine every aspect of a deal and go with your instinct if it doesn't feel right. Um, so this is on, this is interesting. I never thought about this, about, you know, he's setting up all these companies. Like, do you have a favorite? And he said, one question I'm often asked is which company is my favorite? Founders, just like parents, shouldn't have favorites. We love all of our kids equally. But if you promise not to tell anyone, I'll admit to you. Virgin Atlantic will always have an extra sp special place in my heart. Can you imagine me still running a record label in my 60s? That was actually surprising. If First of all, I never thought of, to ask the question, what company is your favorite? But if I did, if somebody had asked the question, I would assume that his response would have been the record label. Uh, so it says, can you imagine me still running a record label in my 60s? Virgin Atlantic was the jump off point. This kind of makes sense why it's his favorite, though. He's describing here. Virgin Atlantic was the jump off point from which I built a whole world to live, love, and laugh within. He called that a lateral move. As I said in 2012, we have no plans to disappear. Virgin Atlantic was my baby 28 years ago when we set it, when we set it up with just one plane. Like all children, they never really stop being your babies, and Virgin Atlantic is still much cherished. And he's talking about... Uh, on the very next page, you know, I think it's it's funny that he loves it because it seems to be also the one that gives him the most problems. So it talks about, uh, he's now continuing to talk about this issue he raised earlier about the, the further consolidation in the airline industry and, you know, the uh, disastrous effects it has for the actual end consumer. For more than a decade, 
BA, British Airways, tried to form a partnership with American Airlines, which would fierce, which we fiercely contested. This partnership could lead to antitrust immunity under U.S. law, which would allow legal collusion on pricing, substan- pricing substantially reduce competition, and potentially put Virgin Atlantic out of business. And I love this. Um, this is like a thought experiment. What would you do if you were king for a day? If I was king for a day, I would ensure competition laws were more strictly adhered to. I believe in this wholeheartedly. I, and I love this next quote. I believe small is beautiful. And the more companies competing, the better. Again, something I always re- reference on the podcast. There's a lot of these ideas that, um, you know, this is Richard Branson now writing this in 2017. But it could very easily have been Edwin Land writing it back in the 1940s. So this BA was essentially requesting permission to fix prices and schedules, as well as share marketing and operational data activity that would normally be illegal. It was an unholy alliance. And uh, so this is his takeaway. He goes, allowing the two biggest carriers on the planet to merge would create a hugely uneven playing field. Okay, so now I want to talk about, well, this is on social media technology, writing, taking notes, delegation, and telling stories. And this is going to unfold over several pages, but I found it really fascinating. It says, two of the big changes over the, over the 20 years since I wrote my first autobiography have been the rise of social media and the way the internet has changed the way we consume information. I did an interview with the New York Times, which they headlined, Taking Virgin's Brand into Internet Territory. Richard Branson says the web is ready for his style of business, ran the subheading. The web may have been ready, but I definitely wasn't. In many ways, Virgin wasn't, and this cost us a lot of time and money. One of the biggest mistakes Virgin ever made was not being fast enough off the mark to become a digital leader. However, there have been many episodes along the way for us to learn from. To begin with... This is interesting. We were extremely quick off the mark when it came to the iPad. And we decided to launch the world's first iPad-only magazine called Project. I joined the team outside Apple's flagship New York store, covered head-to-toe in a newspaper. The magazine was great fun, pioneering a new way for people to digest stories. I quickly realized we had completely misjudged the market, and we were publishing into a void. The critical reception was positive, but there weren't enough people with iPads and certainly not enough people willing to pay to read a magazine. Within less than a year, both publications were dead. I was disappointed that project didn't work because journalism was where I'd begun all those years before. I started Student Magazine because I had a passion for making a positive difference in the world and thought one of the best ways to do so was by spreading the word in print about injustices as well as sharing new breakthroughs and innovation in the arts, culture, and politics. While I dislike school, I always love writing. Aged 19, filling with the optimism of youth, I ruminated on the power of individuals to stimulate positive change. But as well as realizing my journalistic ambitions through student, I was trying to make ends meet, calling up potential advertisers, and organizing distribution. Without even knowing what the word meant, I was becoming an entrepreneur. Then, as we struggled to balance our books, the mail, rec- the mail order record business 
we had started in the back of the magazine took off. Simultaneously, we were running the Student Advisory Center. That's the, what I was referencing earlier. Our nonprofit organization helping more than 500 young people each week cope with issues ranging from loneliness to contraceptive advice to sexuality. With these projects taking up lots of times and effort, student went on the back burner. Soon, Virgin Record Shops and later record labels superseded everything and my journal, jur- journalism career was parked. So before we go into the rest of this, uh, just to recap, he's talking about, hey, I really wish, uh, like, so I started late in the digital game, right? But then in some ways I started early by doing a iPad-only magazine, except at the time I launched it, not enough people had iPads and certainly not enough were willing to pay for a magazine on just the iPad. But he talks about his pr- his first love was, you know, if you're starting a business at 15, chances are you like doing what, what it is you're doing. So he's like, I was bad in school, but I love to write. And so um, I'm going to share later on some of the letters he wrote because he has a lot of handwritten letters that so- in some cases are over 20 years old that I found are really instructive for uh, for just good advice on how to live a good life. Um, but the reason I bring this up is because I, I love his ideas. Like, listen, I loved writing. I liked making a difference. Maybe the iPad magazine wasn't the best way to do it. And so he realizes that a blog and Twitter is basically the same thing, but the modern equivalents. So he, he's going to come to that realization here. He says, but while project wasn't a success, I like to think students' spirit of outspoken thought and heady fun is revived through a different way of connecting with people. My blog and Twitter account. So he's, what, what does that mean? He's basically, well, well, we basically started our own in-house online publishing operation. And thanks to social media, I'm back in the editor's chair. To begin with, I was unsure about its benefits. But 20,000 tweets, scores of social networks, 40 mil- million followers, and a world record for most LinkedIn followers later, I'm happy to be proved wrong about social media not being here to stay. So I went and looked... Um, and I was astonished at how frequently he publishes on his blog. They're little short, just little random thoughts that he has. I would recommend reading it. It's interesting. So he gets into this right here. He says, people often, also often question, how do I find time to write so regularly? Whether notes, letters, blog op-eds, or even books like this. But the reality is I'm always getting my thoughts down on paper. The trick, and I lo- this is great advice here. The trick is to make it part of your daily routine. You have time to eat, drink, brush your teeth, and do dozens of other things every day. Just add writing to the list. I jot down ideas, thoughts, requests, reminders, and doodles every single day. If I didn't, I would forget them before I ever put them in action. So that's part of the reason. There's two things here that are important to me. One, the reason I take notes on books and podcasts, and I don't, I didn't know, I didn't know this was less um, common. Because like I would never remember all this stuff. It's just like you can read a book and then go back five years later and scroll through and just read your highlights and your notes. And there's suddenly like these ideas that, you know, have escaped to to the ether are now uh, forefront of your mind again. I think it's extremely helpful. And there's a there's a he said, I don't know if I share it on the podcast or not, but he's at like Davos taking notes on a presentation and uh, somebody comes over to him like, you're the only one in there taking notes. And his, his point was just like so common. I was like, yeah, of course. How else would I remember it all? Like you can, I think there's, uh, and I certainly used to suffer from this until I saw studies and then my own life experiences that you, you really overrate how much you're going to memorize. 
I mean, even now I talk to like my mother-in-law, I'm like how, like I want to com- try to compare and contrast like what goes on with my daughter to like what, like when my wife was three years old, how was she? And she's like, you know, outside of videos and pictures, you'd be surprised how much you're going to forget as time passes. Cause as you live through it, you're like, wow, that's the most important thing ever. I'm never for- going to forget this. Not realizing that's just fundamentally not how your brain works. But, um, this whole, the second part is I want to do this saying that hey, just make writing a, a part of your daily routine because um, I'm going through and having to having to read a book every week and make a podcast on it take notes go back and, and think about all this stuff I want what I want to do is like write like in addition to the podcast I was thinking about doing this in like uh, like writing what if I could write like a 500 to a thousand words on like the the best What's the number one thing I re- I learned from reading this book? And um, not only because I th- it would help me retain the ideas, but I think it would be useful for other people to read as well. And the reason I do this because in, in, in like personal conversations, I feel like whether it's with an old friend or somebody you're getting to know, there's a really I really like designing questions with constraints because you really see how a person thinks. So for example, I would ask the question, like if you were stuck on a desert island and you could only bring one album with you to listen to for the rest of your life, what does that album be? would be? Or uh, one I ask a lot in my personal life is like, if you could only visit one city for the rest of your life, what would that be? And the reason is like, because you know, people say, they'll give you a list of their maybe favorite books and that would be 20 books or their favorite cities they visited or whatever the case is. But when you say, no, no, you have to choose one. You really get to see how that person thinks. And, um, and I really do feel it's like a a good tool to get to know the inner workings of somebody else's mind better. And I was thinking, I was like, well, what if I like, okay, so if I wrote, an article or whatever you want to call it, an essay, whatever you term you want to put a note to diary entry um, about what's the one thing I learned from each of these entrepreneurs. I think over time, if I'd already been doing this from the get go, I'd have, you know, close to 50 of them by now. I think actually that'd be an interesting like audio book or maybe even a book. But uh, if I had to do that and I, th- I want to start doing it now, it's like, well, what's the one thing you learned from, you know, Paul Allen? What's the one thing you learned from Steve Jobs, uh, James Dyson over and over again? Like this collection of would be really interesting and, and helpful not only to myself, but I think to others. So when I think about that with Richard Branson, it's obviously what I talked about last week. It's like protecting your downside. And I think going into details with stories, which were in the middle of the importance of stories, the section I've just taken a tangent on, um, I think that would be useful and it's i like books that are that are short concise and get right to the point and i think that's just easier for most of us to learn that way so okay so now we're in the middle of why he's taking notes and and everything else so he goes if somebody works for me and doesn't take notes i ask them are you too important note taking isn't beneath anyone i take notes in every meeting to keep the frame of mind to learn i edit as i go along and follow up with dates and tasks in order of importance I couldn't have written two autobiographies without them. My first widely read blog was about the art of delegation. So now we're going from note-taking to delegation. This is about two paragraphs later. It was an appropriate theme since delegation has been a secret of my success for five decades. Asking for support is a strength, not a weakness. If you try to do everything yourself, you won't succeed and you'll make yourself miserable along the way. I now work with our content team on around 600 blogs per year 
and I call the team several times a day. So that's what he's going back where he's talking about, hey, student was, you know, this is a ragtag group of people trying to make a difference. He's like, well, I'm not going to make a magazine today, but an online blog is kind of the best in both worlds. So he's like, we have an in-house online publishing operation and it's through his, it's through his blog. He has a team helping him and they're producing a, a, a lot of content uh, every year. And if you think that sounds too time-consuming, think of all the things you do that take lots of time and are not productive. I love this. I love the art of getting more done by the elimination of... of there's a Bruce Lee quote. It's like, um, it's the daily decrease, not the daily increase that you should focus on. Hack away at the, un, at the unessential. It's, I'm paraphrasing, but it's, it's one of my favorite Bruce Lee quotes. Rather than slave over a spreadsheet... Why not write a blog and turn your pitch into a story? Humans communicate through stories. It's how we make sense of our surroundings, ourselves, and our place in the world. Human beings have glands. That's, this, is such a, this is such interesting writing to me. Human beings have glands that secrete all sorts of things. But the human mind secretes stories. We live narratives. That is the only way we know how to experience anything, and it is our glory. That's this is one of my favorite parts of the book because this what I just read to you is just a the his insights takes place over five six pages and he's wrapping up like what the effect of social media and technology is in, on today like the importance of writing why he takes notes why he feels you need to delegate if you're going to build successful companies and then how to tell how to communicate the values of your company by telling stories. I don't, that's just a lot of information I found extremely valuable. Um, so just a few more things. So <clears throat> remember at the beginning, I told you that th this is a book, as much as he talks about business, it's really a book on life, on somebody that's had an unbelievable, an unbelievably, an unbelievable, excuse me, set of experiences in one lifetime and it's just like his musings on on looking back and the things that he still remembers well this is a short anecdote it's really sad about you know remembering i would say melancholy maybe sad's not the right word but it's just you you need we have one life as he said multiple like you have to live a life filled with purpose like do not suffer every day some level of suffering in life is inevitable of course but don't suffer through it like make your life fill with purpose. Do whatever you need to do to work yourself in that position. And this is the realization that he comes to, you know, he had a really close relationship with his dad and his dad's going to pass away here. So he says, I rang up dad to talk about the arrangements for the big day. So what he's talking about is that um, his daughter and his, what is now his, his daughter's husband called him up and is like, will you, you know, will you, can I marry your daughter? Will you give me a blessing? So he's talking to his dad, and then they, after that, they said, hey, we want to get married on the same day in the same place you did, which was on, I forgot, I think December 20th on Necker Island. So it said, um, Holly and Freddie had decided that they wanted to get married the same date and in the same place as Joan and I had, 20th December on Necker Island. Dad listened carefully and then stopped me in my tracks with his reply. I really hope you all have a wonderful time, he said simply. As he spoke, I understood what he meant. It was like an arrow through the heart. I think he must have known that he only had a few hours left. That night, March 19, 2011, he died peacefully in his sleep. 
I was devastated. However far away we had been from each other in terms of distance, we had always remained extremely close. Dad felt as constant a part of my life as the sun rising and setting each day. He lived a life, he lived as full of life as anybody could wish. So to me, I just took away, it's like, you just live your life with purpose. Enjoy it. He was 93 years old. He said, Dad died a happy man. The only way you can do that is by filling your life with purpose and love. What you give, what you do, how you treat people, and how you make them feel. He's describing his dad here. He had a kind word for everyone. An infectious laugh, a cheeky streak, and a thirst for exploration that I am immensely proud to have inherited. His favorite phrase was, Isn't life wonderful? It truly is, though a little less wonderful without him. Okay, and I want to read, this is one of what I was referencing earlier, his, one of his letters. All right, so this is this is Richard's letter to a young to young inspire young aspiring entrepreneurs. Olivia Hill, a twelve year old schoolgirl who sent me a wonderful note about her own entrepreneurial dreams. She wrote to me asking about the key skills I used when first starting out. I swiftly replied, "The advice might be useful for other young business students too." So here it is. So I want to read you. Richard's letter to young aspiring entrepreneurs. And it doesn't even just have to be young people. It says, Dear Olivia, many thanks for getting in touch. I'm honored you have chosen yours truly as the subject of your business studies project. As somebody who did not particularly enjoy school, I hope you have some fun finding out about Virgin's adventures. As you pointed out, my life in business started with Student Magazine when I was a few years older than you are now. We set up student to give a voice to people like me who wanted to protest against the Vietnam War and the establishment. I didn't have a career in business in mind. We just wanted to make a positive difference to people's lives. I soon learned one of the best ways to do that is to become an entrepreneur. The key enterprising skills I used when first starting out are the very same ones I use today. Now he's going to list off what he feels are valuable traits of an entrepreneur. The art of delegation, risk-taking, surrounding yourself with a great team, and working on projects you really believe in. As you mentioned in your letter, I suffer from dyslexia, but was able to turn this to my advantage. I delegated the areas I struggled with to people who also believed in the project. This freed up my time to focus on what I was good at, the strategy of the magazine, making contacts, and, develop, and developing marketing. We had very little money, so I had to take risks to get our magazine on the map. I approached to be in student people like Mick Jagger and David Hockney, whom somebody with more experience may have been too intimidated to contact. For some reason, they said yes. I secured advertising by calling up big brands from the school phone box, telling them that their rivals were already advertising with us and playing them off against each other. It was all great fun, and we learned so much about business by taking chances, getting things wrong, and getting up to give it another go. Back then, 
people who were interested in starting their own businesses were not encouraged in school. Nowadays, while I still think much more could be done to encourage entrepreneurship and education, there are lots of tools and mentors to help you get started in business. If your studies spark your interest, then that's brilliant. If you don't get top grades, remember there's a lot more to life than some letters on a piece of paper. Have you thought about your own first business idea yet? When you do, be sure to let me know. And a paragraph or two later, he, he expounds on his own personal philosophy. And I love this, and this is where I'll end. It's entrepreneurship is our natural state. All human beings are born as entrepreneurs. But unfortunately, many of us never had the opportunity to unwrap that part of our life. So it remains hidden. Now, as you do have the opportunity, don't waste it. I think entrepreneurship is our natural state. A big adult word that probably boils down to something much more obvious, like playfulness. When we are young, before we have our childlike wonder beaten out of us by adult life, we are at our most inventive and ambitious in our actions. I've always tried to keep that youthful spirit. I think one of the best benefits of having to read so like so many of these biographies is is that it 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 breaks you out of the mold because i'm constantly exposed to people that just they they designed their life they didn't just let life happen to them and it's this constant reminder that life can be almost anything you want it to be it's so much broad more broad than the narrow track society kind of try to push us pushes us into and you realize that the people that just follow that track, those are not the people, they're, they're the opposite of the people we're covering here. Um, and so I think that whole thing is like just, we had it when you're a kid, like you have a childlike wonder at the sense of the world and then it's beaten out of us. And he's like, you know, I'm always trying to keep that youthful spirit and you can kind of see it in the way he, he lives his life and uh, the things he does. So um okay so if you want the full story read the book um you can go to and if you want to read the book and support the podcast at the same time like i said earlier you go to founders podcast forward slash books if you buy n one two i think i think i said this before somebody bought 12 of the books at one time um when you when you click on the link through the that page founderspodcast.com forward slash books and you click through and you buy a book, Amazon sends me a small percentage of sale, no additional cost to you. So it's a great way. It's kind of like if I was sitting out on the corner uh, and I was doing this in like the public square, you could come down and give me 80 cents or a dollar. That's the equivalent of what you're doing when you buy a book. So it may not seem like a lot, but it, it, any little bit helps. And again, like, do you ever regret buying books? Like a book is a bargain. <laughs> it's just probably the best, as far as dollar for dollar, like, I can't think of anything better that you could, you could purchase. And if you want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to become a Founders member. For a small monthly fee, you get access to Founders uh, members only uh, podcasts. There's already 10 or 11, maybe 12 by the time you listen to this. And I do a new one every week. So if you sign up right now, uh, the Founders members uh, podcast I'm doing this week is on Richard Branson and some more ideas from this book. Uh, we're going to talk about giving Steve Jobs an idea, uh, Branson's advice on marriage and relationships, 
his idea about how to turn uh, business, the, the, the metaphors, uh, you know, how to, how to turn a business from an acorn to an oak tree, um, which is one of my favorite Jeff Bezos quotes. Um, we're going to talk about uh, what would Richard do if he had to start over? One of the most unique questions I've heard him asked. Um, some problems, his, his, his outlook on why some problems need a private company right? So not, not public companies and a founder with a long-term vision and how's that's a way that you can only solve specific problems that are not relied on like quarterly earnings. Um, he's got a great story on not, not, uh, on why it's unwise to keep selling onions when the customer wants carrots. Um, there's some, another story I want to tell you about that, uh, that I'll share on the founders, uh, members podcast on Richard Branson, uh, Elon Musk and satellites. And on how expen- expenses compound, and how to keep an eye on uh, an eye on that, and finally, uh, a letter that he wrote to his grandson, which I think is just wonderful advice. Because um, a lot of people say, you know, they, there's these questions where it's like, okay, well, if you could talk to the younger version of you, you know, like what would you tell 20 year old Richard or 30 year old Richard? That's a great question too. But more importantly, that is what would you tell your grandchild? Because you're going to love your children and grandchildren more than you love yourself. And so I think you'll actually learn a lot from that. So um, I, I really like doing the members only podcasts. Uh, some of them look very similar to founders podcast episodes, like the one that you just listened to. Um, some were, are uh, very much an experiment. <laughs> They're kind of weird. Some there's one that was only five minutes long and it's a great story from Samuel Zamuri. Uh, some are long, just as long as a regular podcast. So um, my point being is it's it's my way to, by me going out and making these podcasts, it's my way to say thank you for actually supporting and allowing me to do the project. And if you get any kind of value from this, and you know, I love the reviews, I love the emails I get and everything else, but um, at the end of the day, people willing to spend their hard-earned money to support a project is the best signal for me to keep going and to, that I'm actually doing something with my time that's that people find valuable. Um, so please, if you do love the podcast and you've been thinking, you've been on the fence, like, oh, I'm going to do it eventually. Oh, yeah, I'm going to support one day. Don't wait. Do it now. You click that link that's in, in, the, show, in the show notes or go to Founders Podcast for, uh, for slash support. Uh, if you're doing it on an Apple device, whether a Mac or iPhone, you can use Apple Pay. It takes less than a minute. And then it's set and you don't have to worry about it. So that's the best way. The second, uh, another way to support the podcast is um, just like I take notes in highlights and books. I do the same thing for podcasts and I do the same. And I, the reason I've been taking notes for so long on podcasts um, is because just like what Richard said, like how else am I going to remember them all? Like going back and reading um, notes, like it just, if you're listening to a podcast to learn, you should be, if you're not taking your own, like you should be taking notes because <laughs> if not, like these ideas, like a few of them are going to stick in your mind and they'll stick around forever and, and they, they'll probably change the course of your life. But there's a lot of stuff that maybe you learned six months ago that you heard six months ago and that re- by rereading it today sparks another idea that now interacts with an idea that you've had since then. And you know, knowledge compounds. And so what founders notes is, is, Hey, we're covering 
entrepreneurship from historical context on founders, right? And we're doing that through books, through autobiographies and biographies. But what about all the entrepreneurs that are still in the arena today, operating today, building companies? They, when they go up here on a podcast, which are, to me, what that is, is like, it reminds me of back when I was in college. It's just a lecture, except a lecture is way more valuable because you have an expert in a very narrow, specific domain, which is they're an expert on how they built their one specific company. And if we can pull ideas out of how they built that one specific company, now some of those ideas won't apply to you, but some of them will. And then you can, again, take an idea that's that's basically, what is that? That's just an, a, a distilled, it's like their, their experience distilled, right? So you have maybe years of building a company that can come down to a, a helpful lesson or a helpful hint for you. You can then take that from from them, from their experience, combine it with something else that from your experience, and now you're led to maybe a new business model, a new idea, a new opportunity. I think it's unbelievably value. So um, for the people that are already paid subscribers on Founders Notes, you see that something I've just done is also explaining like the value is very clear once you read it. But at the top of every email, it's going to say, hey, I think last week it said uh, Founders Notes turned five hours of audio into key ideas you can read in 10 minutes. And so every week at the top of the paid uh, email, you're going to have, okay, Founders Notes took 12 hours of audio. And ter- basically what I do is I add up all the, how long the podcast takes to listen to, and then how many words. The average person reads like 275 words a minute. Um, and so ideally I want the email to be, you know, five, maybe about 10 minutes long. I think it's good. Um, and so what, what, what happens is every month that you're a subscriber, paid subscribers are going to hear for, from about 20 different founders every month. It's about five every week. If you want to test it out first, go to foundersnotes.co, put in your email address. You'll immediately get back the most recent version of the free list. And I, uh, free, the people on the free list are probably going to get about one, uh, hear from about one founder a week. So about 20% of what I'm, per, I'm currently producing. That gives you a good idea of what, the, what it looks like. And basically it's, um, I take key ideas and I put them in tweet size bullet points. So in two and a half minutes or thereabout, you can read the best ideas out of an hour long podcast. And if you're interested in listening to the podcast, I leave a link and you can go directly there and listen to the whole thing for, for additional content. I personally think Founders Notes is extremely valuable for people that are interested in entrepreneurship, whether you're already a founder now or you want to be or you just want to learn about business in general. So if that sounds like something you're interested in, go ahead and sign up at foundersnotes.co. Links are in the podcast player like like always. Um, okay, so Founders Members, Founders Notes, if you want to buy books, for Founders Podcast forward slash books. If you want to listen to the book, uh, the book I just read or any one other one, instead of reading it, there's a link below. I think it expires soon though, and it's a way for you to get two free audiobooks. So I'd recommend picking up two of the books that I've covered so far, any whichever ones stick out to you. And one last thing before I get out of here is if you want additional content from me, extra podcasts that are not on the free feed and are not on the member feed, uh, I do extra podcasts um, for people that have left reviews and have told other people, I've recommended this podcast to other people. So if you do it on like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, you can leave a review Take a screenshot, email it to foundersreviews at gmail.com. I will reply back. I check this this email about once a week. I'll reply back with a uh, reviewer-only private feed that you can then input into your podcast player. It's really easy to do. And you'll have access to not only the, the past uh, member uh, reviewer-only podcasts that I've done, 
I did one on Steve Jobs, as told through uh, uh, Ed Catmull, who worked with Steve Jobs for 26 straight years, and one on Max Levchin. But any ones I do in the future, that feed will automatically update into your podcast player. If you're listening on things like Overcast, pick an episode you tr- you truly, truly loved, and they have a recommendation engine where you are, uh, a mechanism where you can, uh, I think it's a star. It is a star. It'll turn the star gold, take a screenshot of the star turning gold, email it to me, and same thing. And a- a- any podcast uh, app that you use. Whatever kind of you know recommending mechanism that podcast player has works for me. Uh, take screenshots, send it to foundersreviews at gmail.com, and I will reply back. All right, I've talked enough. Thank you very much for the support. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next week.